Hello and welcome to Love is the Message, a podcast about music, the dance floor, counterculture and sound systems. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here as usual with my friend Tim Lawrence. Hi, Tim. Hi, Jeremy. How's it going? It's going well, actually. How about you? Yeah, good. Yeah, we're getting settled into the new term. Things have calmed down a bit from the madness of late September. Yeah. And we're getting settled into the new series, and we have our oh, new website. True. We should we should kind of talk about the web. You should uh, encourage listeners to check out the new website, shouldn't we? Yeah. So we've just been talking for a while about getting a website going, and Matt uh, Huxley, our fantastic producer, uh, has put together a really great website that we've all sort of uh, been contributing to a bit, and uh, we're going to carry on developing it. Uh, for sure there's lots of additional pages we want to introduce but it's definitely up there and running and it's i think we think it looks you know it's it's coming along really well and we please please visit and share gem it's it's love is the passage love is the message pod dot co dot uk oh okay that's the dot co dot uk all right yeah dot co dot uk and it's a great looking website i can i really have to share this around a lot Okay, well, today we are going to be talking about um, the next thing we decided to put in our series about New York in the mid-70s, and that is the fascinating historical event of the formation and development of the New York City DJ's record pool. Tim is the person who's written the history of this uh, in his book, in his book, Love is the Message. Love saves the day. (laughs) Oh, yeah, love saves the day. In his book, edit edit this. Confusing. (laughs) The book is called "Love Saves the Day," and the podcast is called "Love Is the Message." Um, Very good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, So mostly, Tim is going to be telling the story, and uh, and I will be interjecting with extremely clever remarks as they appear to me. (laughs) Um, So, Tim, tell us about the record pool. Yeah. What was it? How did? It, where did it come from? Well, I'm just going to just do the because we've got a whole. We're going to go on for an hour. It's going to it's going to unfold. Um, but just to kind of give a very brief uh, introduction before we sort of you know go through some of the f- really fascinating detail, it's to say that this was something that when I started uh, researching and writing Love Saves the Day, I'd never heard of before. I had heard of record pools, but I hadn't heard about where they originated from. I hadn't heard about the New York City record pool being the first record pool. And I certainly didn't really know that this guy, David Mancuso, who was really very much off the radar and re- almost entirely unrecognized for his contribution when I started interviewing him in 1997, that David, aside from all of the other things that it turns out he influenced during the 1970s, he was also pivotal to the New York City record pool. Um, and it does make sense, of course, because David was 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 concerned with egalitarianism. He was concerned with progressive culture. You know, he was the first person, the first party host, uh, we could say, I suppose, to really think of the dance floor as a utopia, as a potentially utopian space, and and put all of his energies into shaping it as that. So, so, and and there you go. He is also the person who tried to, you know help organize New York City DJs so that they could be less exploited. Um, So he really, you know, he wasn't only concerned with turning his own front room into a progressive space, but um, he also wanted to try and, you know, stand up for the collectivity of of New York DJs. And it's, I don't know how often, it's it's something I don't always get to say, I suppose, but David was, this will this will eventually come through in something I'm kind of currently writing and maybe it will be out in a few years. But David was so into the camaraderie of the, 
of the DJing profession at that particular time. It was all about sharing, about you know supporting. There was obviously some rivalries. There were fallings out, but this is just like you know run of the mill stuff. But David was very much into the the way that DJs were were, for example, sharing good music rather than you know some of the parallel developments that emerged in hip hop, where DJs might sort of black out, famously black out the names on the labels of records so that people couldn't uh, you know people couldn't have a peek and then get buy the same record for themselves you know the the, yeah. the northern record... soul northern soul djs did the same thing oh did they i didn't know that yeah notoriously oh, right, you co- you right. covered, had a piece of cardboard to cover up the labels of your rare records so that nobody could identify them and add them to their own collections yeah and obviously i you know i don't this is a discussion for another time maybe i think we we've, we've got to come round and just talk about djing a bit more abstractly at some point but yeah i, I don't want to say that one thing is right and the other thing is wrong in, in yeah, I do. simplistic terms <laughs> but yeah the idea of collaborating is better that is certainly more favorable it seemed than the idea of, of being competitive um, so, so there you go. David was David was you know once again a, a key figure. The, le- the the background to how all of this emerged, though, I do think is kind of obviously. I'm going to say I think it's interesting. Uh, it did become you know quite a big section of, of Love Saves the Day, um, and the documentation around it is really fascinating. And it sort of it goes back just to try and kind of why you know provide some of the background as to how the idea of, of I, sh- I should also say in case anyone isn't clear that the idea of the record pool is that it and, and subsequent record pools although there's been a lot of variation in the practices mm-hmm. and I, that I know David didn't straightforwardly uh, approve of not that David has to be the you know the the litmus for every every judgment we hold but he did get an awful lot of things right when it came to sort of dance and party culture. But the base, uh, anyway, the basic functioning of a record pool is to, you know, is to accept uh, free promotional copies of records um, from record companies and to distribute distribute them uh, amongst um, its its members who would also be DJs. So it was basically free promotional copies, supposedly. We'll probably come back to this this thematic, but just to fly, you know, flag up one way in which David felt that this became corroded is that you know eventually you know, many DJs would be charged if they wanted to be members of future record pools. And typical, typically for David, he really opposed all of these charges. Um, he just said, no, that you know, the DJs are basically doing promotional work on behalf of the record companies. This should be for free and they shouldn't have to pay administrative charges, uh, etc., in order to get these copies. But let's leave that to one side. The background to all of this is, is of course, really the rise of the DJ profession. Uh, it's important to know that almost all uh, of the early DJs uh, were working class. M- most of them were Italian American or African American. Uh, I only know one, Bobby, Bobby Guttadaro, who was kind of ostensibly came from a, a middle class background. Uh, his, I think, his parents were doctors or something. But generally speaking, they were all working class. They didn't have much money. And they were working in this 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 kind of nexus that we've identified uh, in earlier uh, a se- series already, which is this transition from a Fordist to a post-Fordist economy, an industrial to a post-industrial economy. Um, I'm sure we did talk, actually, maybe even in the first introductory series, uh, but maybe the second, of how DJs operated outside of the musicians' union. Um, they had no choice. I don't think the musicians' union would have thought of them as being musicians for a millisecond. Um, but they also were, were, were you know, leading, um, you know, these, this life which was quite precarious. 
they didn't really have any, well, obviously they didn't have any formal training for whatever they did, um, unlike most members of the musicians union. So they weren't, they were never inculcated into a kind of professional practice, which had a whole set of ex, uh, expectations, including pay rates around it. So they were working for clubs. They were being very poorly paid for the most part. Uh, club employ, employers were often not very reliable people. Uh, they they wouldn't think it's inconceivable that any DJ ever got a contract for whatever work she or he was doing. Of course, it was mainly men. So it was um it was you know also therefore quite difficult for them to actually afford to buy music. And this was this was kind of significant. And what they were doing is they were basically having to go to record shops, um, and eventually it would be to record companies. But initially, for record shops to to buy whatever it was they were feeding these kind of very hungry crowds. And the other backdrop, which I think we've everyone knows by this point, is that from there not being very much to do in 1970, other than go to really the loft or the sanctuary and, a, and you know a, a small number of other places that seems became influenced by them. But by the time we we reached the juncture of the conjuncture of this series, which is 1975, 76, by this point, you know the whole the whole discotheque and private party kind of network is, is expanding rapidly. So there's also a sense that there's a you know there's a there are market consequences or there are consequences for what these these DJs are doing. But the DJs remained poor, and you know they would get by in however they could. A number a, a number of them dealt drugs. There's some off-the-record kind of commentary on this in, in Love Saves the Day. Um, you know, people, one, one DJ saying that the only way they could afford to buy records was, was to deal drugs. Um, the quote goes, we weren't getting paid anything and the clubs weren't about to buy us any records, so how else could we afford to keep up? We weren't into getting rich. We were starving artists who did what we had to do to maintain our art. Probably could actually say who said that quote now that the person is dead, but I won't for for whatever reasons, various reasons. Yeah, the other, another interesting way that DJs were trying to get by uh, is they start they would make reel to reel tapes uh, in, for backup situations for their regular discotheque jobs. You know, maybe they would be ill one night or who knows what. So they they all make backup reel to reel tapes that they could play just in case. And then they, a number of these DJs began to realise that there was a market for selling these reel-to-reel tapes, basically for cap- for cafes uh, that wanted to kind of play, you know, nice new music and interesting music as a backdrop. So they start DJs started to sell these reel-to-reel tapes for between thirty to seventy-five dollars, and this became a front-page story in Billboard. Um, I think in nineteen seventy-four, I could get the date. So this just a, this is just to give a bit of a flavour of what's going on. That this is these are these are people who are passionate about music, uh, but they're you know insecure and don't have any money and are scrambling around as as as, as best they can. And it's also to note that although it, at the beginning of 1974 disco was barely a word, as the as 1974 uh, things did develop quite rapidly, which kind of you know brings us up to the current series in 1975. But just to give a little bit of detail. One is that labels were starting to release DJ-friendly mixes. So this was a, a development of 74 that accelerates in 75 and 76. And we're going to come back to this in a later episode in this series, uh, probably quite soon when we talk about the, the introduction of the, or the rise of the 12-inch single. So let's park that for now. Um, but the other major development, uh, which also underpins basically the, emo- the, the introduction of the record ball, is that DJs were beginning to create hits, hits 
And this was phenomenal. We've talked about this briefly in terms of, in particular, David Mancuso being the first, well, one of two, um, again, with David, it's always a shorthand to call him a DJ, but let's use that shorthand for now. So David was one of two DJs who played uh, Manu Dibango's song, Makosa, and it got into the Billboard charts without radio play. Um, and this was the first sign of emerging DJ power to influence, if you like, the buying habits of, of, of listeners, uh, including people who are going out dancing in their, to their parties, of course. Well, that was Sol Makosa, and sometimes the subject gets dropped after that. But, um, but actually, this kind of phenomenon of DJs breaking records, basically turning records that the, the record companies weren't really interested in promoting, and getting those records and playing them to their crowds, and the crowds going out and buying those records, and these records becoming hits without record companies really trying to do anything about it. This became became a real phenomenon in 74, and it continued in, into 1975. So just to provide a bit of detail that we, we definitely didn't do in Series 2 when we were last in New York. One of the, you know, maybe the biggest one of these and the first one after Sol Makosa, I believe, um, was Love Unlimited, the Love Unlimited Orchestra's Love's Theme. Love Unlimited Orchestra was one of Barry White's groups, uh, he didn't sing on it, but he was the producer of it. And this was a record that was uh, in the basement of 20th Century Records. And uh, the promoter there was a guy called Billy Smith, who happened to be kind of a gay man and was very into that, the whole kind of dance scene. Um, and he gave a copy of this record to David Rodriguez, uh, Nicky Ciano, who we're hoping to do an interview with later on in this series, which is we're very excited about, and also Michael Capello, who was you know, an acolyte or a, a, a prodigy, if you like, or, or mentee of Francis Grasso. And Billy Smith at 20th Century basically, you know, uh, invited these DJs into the into the company, let them go into the basement. Uh, and they were scrummaging around for records and, uh, and in particular records that had covers that they thought that they might, they might like. They saw the cover of Love Unlimited and they grabbed it. Nicky recounts the, the recount of the story to me, and you know, basically, Billy Smith had told him that you know these are dead albums waiting to be trashed. David Rodriguez replied something along the lines of, "Well, they got black people on the cover. Give them to us." Um, they were just, you know, it was it was pretty crass form of uh, semiotics, if you like, in terms of, but you know, it's a pretty fair one as well. David David kind of made the same decision around the Bar- when he bought Barabbas in 1973. So, you know, when this record eventually uh, was played by Frankie Crocker on WBLS, you know, this legendary DJ and, and black, the most, you know, important black radio station in New York City, Frankie Crocker announced, you know, that he was premiering Love Theme. And Nikki Ciano, or maybe we should hold back some of this for when we, when we interview Nikki, but, you know, but basically Nikki was in the back of a cab when he heard uh, Frankie Crocker make this announcement and said, you know, this queen isn't premiering anything, i.e. the DJs have already been playing it for months. Um, And so, you know, to cut a a story that goes through various turns a little bit tighter, uh, the record ended up reaching number one. And this was a big deal, you know, a record that companies were going to throw away, uh, thanks to DJs kind of, you know, basically playing it to their crowds and it catching on through this in this very organic way ends up becoming a number one hit. There's a bunch of other records during 74 and 75 that sort of do the same thing. Carl Douglas, Kung Fu Fighting. It's obviously kind of quite a well-known record. The, the general manager, it's another 20th century record, actually, 
ended up even giving a gold record to a, this Bobby Gutadaro, who I just mentioned before, Bobby DJ, he was known as, and also David Rodriguez, DJ of the Limelight, and a good mate of Nicky Siano is a bit of a, a mentor figure for Nicky as well. So this was this next stage, really. It's a record company getting a massive hit, like Kung Fu Fighting. I think it sold. I can't remember if it sold 2 million or what. And then awarding the DJs a gold record for contributing to it becoming a hit. That's not a paycheck, obviously. And these DJs are still having to, you know, either buy for the... So what was going on? They were either buying the records or they would go knocking on the doors of the record companies to beg for records. And if they were quite well known or they were emerging and clearly emerging, they had a reasonable chance of, you know, getting in. But it was very it was very haphazard and occasional and unreliable. Um, and certainly if you weren't a well-known DJ, uh, you had no no real hope at all of, of doing it. So just to kind of bring in a bit of music anyway, just have a little bit of musical break. We could listen to another record, I thought, uh, which also benefited from basically DJ play helping turn it into a hit. This is BT Express's Do It Till You're Satisfied. So it's just, a, it's no more uh, than, well, first of all, a really great record, actually, that still sounds good. Was it released as a single? I've only ever played it off the album. Yeah, 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 I'm sure it was. Um, yeah, and it went to the it went to the top of the, yeah, it's definitely a single because it went to the top of the charts. Uh, and it was a Scepter record and Florence Greenberg, the female owner of Scepter Records, uh, credited uh, New York's DJs and club club crowds or party crowds as being, you know, helping this record reach the top of the charts and go gold. And there's another, I'm just going to just bring into, um, you know, just to kind of wind up this little introduction, I suppose, which kind of sets up, you know, the formation of the record pool. Just kind of play one, uh, mention one more record, which is obviously iconic, uh, which is this record, Never Can Say Goodbye by Gloria Gaynor. Yeah, so um, so Gloria Gaynor as Never Can Say Goodbye was released by MGM, and it was once again sitting in a kind of a, a basement of the record company. Uh, radio wasn't interested in it. The record company wasn't introducing it. I into I mean, I remember t- interviewing Tom Moulton about this, and um, you know, he just said that no one, no one was really uh, MGM was particularly interested in. You know, and what year was that? This was 19, 1974, the end of 74. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, the record pool was formed in 1975. So this is all just a bit of a, a, a little rewind to, to run up to, to that development. Yeah, so then it was around this time, the end of 74, that Record World 
launched its Disco Files column, which was authored by Vince Letty. Again, we're talking about an emerging kind of scenario here, you know, network of relations, really, in which the DJs, you know, dance floors, the music they're listening to is is a kind of is all catching on, really. And the magazines that cover music are also beginning to catch up. So, so Record World's Record World started their Vincelletti column, and uh, uh, Billboard also started their own disco column. Which, you know, arguably somewhat problematically, they had Tom Moulton uh, become the author of. So he was was in a situation where he was both reviewing records and producing and re- well mainly remixing records mm. uh, be that as it's may tom used his first column to really draw attention to the gloria gainer record which he had also in this case mixed and the the record col- his column ran um yeah i think it opens with with large numbers of discos reportedly opening around the country four questions most after discos by their customers are number 1 the name of the record being played and the artist two is it new three where can it be purchased four if gloria gaynor is so popular at discos why isn't she being played on radio um, and, and Bill Wardlow, who was the owner of, of the ed- editor, I think, of uh, Billboard magazine, basically ended up backing up Tom Walton rather than running scared of this challenge to the industry and to radio. Went on, asked Tom to take, you know, to take him on a tour of kind of, you know, of discos, discotheques, and became quite enamoured with the culture. Um, also, together they watched through DJ play. Um, Never can say goodbye. Uh, become a sort of a bonus, you know, a, a significant hit. It wasn't a runaway hit. I think it peaked at number nine in the charts, but it stayed in the in the charts for like seventeen weeks. And it was yet another example of a record that that DJs were playing. And actually, they really loved because they there was even a kind of a ceremony held at Le Jardin, one of these midtown discotheques that had a bit of an edge to it for the first couple of years. Uh, there was a kind of a mock ceremony in which Gloria Gaynor was crowned queen of dis- of discos by DJs. So what is it about that record that you think made it so central for disco and initially not apparently appealing for radio play? I know, it's puzzling, isn't it? I think, well, one of the things that marks out uh, American radio is it's quite um, seg- segmented or segregated, isn't yeah. it? So, or specialist, I suppose, is maybe a better word to use. I think segmented was the right word to begin with. Oh, okay. All right. Segmented. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> too many <laughs> too many attempts to try and say the same thing. Um, yeah, so rock, you know, rock remained easily the biggest selling genre in the United States, the industry was largely kind of controlled by, without trying to be too simplistic about this, white guys who also liked rock music. So they weren't really into black music. And then if you look at where the black, the black radio stations also weren't particularly interested in disco. Um, I mean, Frankie Crocker at WBLS became this very significant figure because he took WBLS from being a largely, you know, radical black radio station that, you know, might be sort of playing free jazz and kind of, you know, you know, up to the minute funk um, and some soul. And he took that and made it something which was more kind of s- slicker, smoother, and, you know, arguably also more upwardly mobile. But Frankie Crocker was, was, was something of an, you know, was a pioneer in this regard. It wasn't what was happening on black radio. 
Uh, and the other thing is the record companies were still primarily looking to push music that they thought they could sell. So they might reckon that they could sell, you know, some Mar- Marvin Gaye records or something. But, you know, but in a way, they just thought that someone like Gloria Gaynor was just like, what the the sound that became disco was ju- wasn't judged to be commercially very, you know, having much appeal. It was too, it was, it was for you know, for black, you know, it might appeal to black women who didn't have much disposable income and would also appeal almost exclusively, you know, supposedly, we know this wasn't the case to that group as well. And it was partly because there was such a high, you know, contingent of of gay dancers and DJs uh, within the dance scene that sort of saw the appeal of this record, you know, amongst other things, the fact that you could you could let yourself go to it, you could have a good dance, and that the lyrics, you know, appealed to the emotional heartstrings of of you know a constituency that felt as though they still hadn't been accepted within mainstream society, and you know, yeah, well, and- this is what I think about this record. I think it has uh, this record has a sort of melancholic urgency, I would say, which is quite atypical of of chart pop in any of any genre really like it isn't it's fine it's very distinctive from that sort of straight ahead quite straight ahead funk of uh, bt express for example what gain is doing with the voice there is you know it's very interestingly poised between sort of gospel and and the blues in, in some sense in terms of its derivation it doesn't it's not just a celebratory chorus of gospel being you know given a funk beat it is reminiscent also of sort of people like billy holiday if you go back a generation or two and it's quite and it has that kind of melancholic sort of dramatic quality i mean obviously gainer then you know she, she produces the absolutely definitive version of that later on with i will survive and, but it's um but I think there is something, there's a very specific aesthetic. There's a very specific aesthetic, which is part of disco, you know, as an aesthetic, as a genre, as a sort of structure of feeling almost. And it is always, it is associated with, quite closely with the gay club culture, which is emerging at this time. You know, this sense of longing, this sense of, as you say, not quite fitting in, the sense of the, the unattainability of desire, the objects of desire. You know, this isn't, it's not a song about being about to get married to someone. It's, or, and, um, I think it does have a real sort of emotional power, and I think it's also it's really interesting. It mar- it's really interesting that it, it, of course, it becomes as you say, it does have a really wide appeal, you know, to straight people, to people of all genders. That isn't really what people are expecting. Anyway, if you, I mean, if you really want to push this, you could think about stuff we've already said in this series about the emergence of punk, for example. I mean, one of the things that's going on across different genres of music is people are experimenting with ways of making music, which isn't, it's not, it's not exclusive. It's not primarily about like just having a, just having a great time and just talking about having a great time. Uh, And it's finding ways of sort of aestheticizing that experience and giving voice to it in different ways. Uh, so I th- for me, there's, there's a sort of affinity, actually. There's a weird affinity between this and something like, you know, blank generation or something. It's a very different, it's a different social group. It's a different way of reflecting on the, the, the set of experiences. But it, 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 I think it, it must be some significance to the fact that it does have this really wider, widespread resonance that people aren't really expecting it to have away from the, the discos. So there was, there, was a ver- there was a deep emotional connection you know, this was, I think this was probably the first example of a, of a black female vocalist, you know, coming, you know, face to face with a constituency of primarily uh, 
gay men. Well, she's the diva, isn't she? She's the first. She's the first diva in that sense. Like before that, I mean, it's interesting. Like Aretha's not really. Aretha doesn't. Aretha is something different. Aretha's like the last great gospel singer, and then Gloria is sort of the, is the first diva. If if and it's something slightly different, something more urban, something more secular. Yeah, and 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 yeah, the sheer camp of it as well is obviously crucial. The sheer campness of the crowning ceremony it really does mark some the emergence of a new mode of you know uh, specifically sort of female musicianship at this moment i think well you know it's also we've we've just we've lost you know we lost you know queen elizabeth like died not that long ago here in the uk <laughs> and there was obviously you know significant numbers of people wanted to turn out and you know more you know pay tribute more on the part well this is about hang on this this is a group of, of D- New York DJs from you know ethnic working class background saying, well, if we got to choose a queen, this is who we'd have as our queen. Yeah, and it's quite and it's quite different from what many other people would, would uh, the type of person many other would choose. So it's about you know this was also about forging alliances of affinity. Effectively, these these groups weren't supposed to come together, but around the, the dance floor they they were starting to. Yes, yes. Love is love is. Love is the message. Enjoying the show? If you can, please consider supporting what we do via our Patreon so we can stay free. You can find the link in the show notes. Thanks and back to the show. Well, anyway, yeah, so it's out of this scenario that, you know, the record pool basically start, you know, forms. I mean, so again, quote Nicky Ciano, for anyone who's not entirely sure who Nicky Ciano is, he was a regular du- uh, dancer at the loft and aspiring DJ who you know who got got work in a, a number of emerging discotheques before he uh, in uh, relatively early 1973 along with um, uh, his friend and, and sometimes occasional girlfriend I think uh, Robin Lord opened the gallery uh, with the support of his brother and the gallery was the second private party or invite only party to try and uh, reproduce the basic loft, David Mancuso's basic loft structure. Um, the first being the 10th floor, which we'll come back to later on in, in this series as well. So anyway, this is Nicky and he went on to, uh, you know, he, as after the gallery was an extraordinary party. No one questions that. And Nicky, of course, then sort of did go on to be the alternate DJ at Studio 54 for a while. So has, you know, lots of interesting stories to tell and is an interesting figure. But as, as he commented, as he told me in an interview for Love Saves the Day, when I was interviewing for that book uh, a number of years ago now, uh, he told me of this moment, you know, we, the DJs, were dealing with the same crowds every week and we programmed them. David wouldn't talk about this particularly, but in this way, but Nicky would. We heavily rotated records, just like radio, and the next week that record would be a hit. So DJs were randomly knocking at record companies, trying to get free promotional uh, material. The process was random and chaotic, uh, and the other some DJs were definitely more favoured than others, depending on their, you know, how popular they were perceived to be by the record companies. I mean, just have to imagine a record company, you know, people showing up and like asking for, you know, free free music. And obviously the record company is going to be inclined to say, go away. You know, this wasn't something the record companies particularly wanted, but they did also notice that these DJs were able to market, sell records in a way that they, they didn't really fully understand. And they did quite like the idea of some money coming in. So the the New York record pool came out of one of these moments uh, when when Steve DeQuisto, um, 
who was very good friends with Michael Cabello, and along with Michael were the sorts of protégés, if you like, of Francis Grasso. Uh, went uh, and and also just to add to Steve, Steve then around early 1971 became you know met David Mancuso and and they became very close. And Steve took loads of DJs along to the loft, so that was the beginning of the whole phenomenon there. And at one point in 1974. Um, Steve uh, wanted to uh, go, well, he not he wanted, he went to a company called CTI. This is the spring of 1975. Went up to the head of promotion, Terry Serafino, and asked for a copy of a record, um, which I suppose we should hear before I go any further with this story, uh, which is uh, Esther Phillips's What a Difference a Day Makes. And difference is spelt without the first E. So difference rather than difference. What a difference a day makes. 24 little hours. From the sun and the flowers. Where there used to be rain. My yesterday was blue, dear. Today I'm a part of you, dear. So I mean, one of the slightly amusing aspects, or one of the many amusing aspects of this story, because these were all characters and they did have quite, they were quite outspoken and often quite hilarious. But uh, one of the funny things about this story is that, you know, it turns out that, that Steve would say, well, actually, it wasn't even a very good record anyway. But he went to get a copy of it and Terry Serafino basically turned him away, saying that it was only for the top DJs. And Steve, who was very rumbustious and opinionated, uh, a real campaigning type, was really upset. And uh, he told, you know, the, in his words, he said to me, he said, a car system was emerging. Uh, instead of us all sharing this music, 10, J, 10 DJs would get a record and 40 wouldn't. David, being David Mancuso, David, of course, was like, what do you mean top DJs? There's no such thing as top. As, as top. We're all DJs. So there goes David again, insisting on equality. Good old David. So David, you know, told, you know, told me, uh, you know, this whole, this whole episode upset him a great deal. Uh, he's, you know, again, to quote, why not? I've got the quote in front of me. He said, I ne- I'd never wanted to be on anybody's special list because that implied that I was better than someone else. I thought it was all bullshit. So I never went to visit record companies in order to get records. When Steve told me what had happened, I thought it sounded like the discrimination was getting worse. So eventually, uh, the record companies got fed up with this situation. Sharon Hayward, who worked uh, for, as a promoter for RCA, called a meeting with the DJs to try and sort of find out, resolve a better system. Uh, it's held on the, the dance floor of this discotheque called Hollywood. Uh, and Steve DeQuisto and David Mancuso sat at the back of the room. The meeting got tense. David wasn't very impressed with how the DJs were organized. He thought it was they were a bit unprofessional uh, and felt that the DJs needed to get uh, their act together. And, and at that point in this meeting, David turned to Steve and said it would be a good idea if they got the DJs got together by themselves and came up with a proposal. And he, David, said to Steve, we, or he said, we could form a pool or something. And Steve DeQuisto's response was, what do you mean a pool? And David said, like a carpool, where everybody jumps in and gets organized, you know, sharing a car or whatever. Every And David's line is, every DJ would be treated equally. So they all, they organized a DJ-only meeting. 
which was, of course, held at the loft. David, by this point, had started a move into 99 Prince Street in the middle of Soho. We're going to come back to this uh, very significant development in the history of the loft in a later episode in this series. Uh, And the DJ, you know, they made this announcement, basically, at the meeting that the DJs uh, should meet separately. The record companies initially freaked out uh, and felt that um, the DJs didn't need to organise separately. And David and Steve said, well, actually, this has not got anything to do with you if we want to organise separately. So in preparation for this meeting that took place on the 2nd of June 1975, David, with Vince Aletti, I believe, and um, Steve DeQuisto around as well, John Carl, I think it's John Carlson, a writer friend of David's, who would help him compose some of some writing every now and again. They basically wrote a declaration of intent uh, of the DJs. It's like a manifesto, basically. And I do think this. I mean, I found this all very exciting when I was first researching it all these years ago. So I, if if it sounds like a good idea, maybe it doesn't. I could read this pretty short declaration of intent. Yeah, read it. Yeah. Yeah. So this was signed by all the DJs who showed up to this this meeting. Um, we, the undersigned, have agreed to become associated in the record pool, which has been established for the mutual benefit of discotheque DJs and record companies. The record pool will be a self-service, self-regulated, independent calm centre, which will act as a point of exchange between record companies and discotheque DJs. The pool will take responsibility for establishing the absolute legitimacy of the DJs involved. Because, as an aside, this was an issue. Who was it? Who you know? They couldn't claim records for everybody. They had to show that these are working DJs, effectively. So, um, so it will take the pool will take responsibility for establishing the absolute legitimacy of the DJs involved. The pool will be a place to receive and distribute recordings and information pertaining to recordings. The record pool will enhance rapport among the participants. The benefits of the record companies would be a direct and efficient means of distributing their product to the discotheque DJs. In turn, we as a group and individually will inform the record companies about the progress of their products, i.e. provide feedback. This will result in our being able to devote more time and energy to the creative aspects of listening and presenting music. Signed, David Mancuso, Steve DeQuisto, another DJ who was involved for a while, Paul Casella, and maybe Vince Letty, though I don't know. So yeah, so that was the inaugural meeting. This is the formation of, of the, the record pool. I mean, the a meeting is then set up when the record companies come along just a, a few weeks later, but we can come to that in just a bit. I was wondering what you what you think of all of this as a form of workers' autonomy, autonomous organization. Well, yeah, I mean, it's really fascinating. I, mean, I remember when you, yeah, I remember when you were first working on the manuscript of the book, and I read about this, and it was, you know, it was sort of uh, incredible. And I would say, in a lot of ways, it's typical of that historical moment because this is the time when, I mean, in Britain, for example. You know, we often talk about the rise of the new left, the social movements like women's liberation, the counterculture. But uh, an important part of all that is the um, the fact that also within the trade union movement, there's a growing wave of militancy in the UK and in uh, all across Western Europe, actually. Uh, and to some, I mean, arguably also in Eastern, in the Soviet bloc, it's been happening in some places. And one of the demands of the most radical edge of this uh, wave of 
labour militancy is growing demands for workers' control of, of production processes, to, for workers to actually be put into a different sort of relationship with their work to that of just being wage earners who take orders from bosses. So in Britain, there's a strong, there's a wave of factory occupations. Um, there's a famous dock strike in Glasgow. Uh, there are very, and there are various projects and plans which are l- really calling on uh, the Labour government in the second half of the seventies, ultimately, to implement plans to actually give workers more control over their own working lives and over their workplaces. Uh, it doesn't really get anywhere in Britain. Eventually, this wave is crushed by Thatcherism in Britain. In Germany, actually, it's the place where this wave has the most sort of institutional success that I know of, also in places like Scandinavia. So you end up with countries like West Germany passing laws which say that there have to be a certain, the representatives of trade unions on the boards of companies over a certain size, which is in, in many ways is seen as a not particularly radical development by some people because it just it ends up sort of institutionalizing the trade union bureaucracies as social partners of capitalists rather than as you know, radical or revolutionary forces but it is an outcome of this wave it's also part of the broader like democratic character of the wave of political radicalism at this time historically which is also registered by things like the fact that in america it's between 68 and sort of 75 that the primary system is really introduced for electing candidates to elected office primaries as we know them now weren't really aren't really a thing before the end of the 60s and they become a thing as as a response to a wave of demands first you know made on the democratic party by radical activists influenced by the new left and in italy uh, famously there's this wave of political radicalism and theory and social activity, the, the constitution of the, net, the famous networks of so-called social centres, which were these often squatted buildings where people would run radio stations out of them or people would do all kinds of musical and arts and theatre type practice. And this wave of worker militancy, which you can trace really back in some ways to the pre-fascist period when Antonio Gramsci was leading the workers' occupation of the fiat factories in Turin, but which manifests itself quite quite strikingly um, in a wave of radicalism in Italy, which again is eventually like fully suppressed by uh, right-wing paramilitaries and a right-wing government you know, backed by the CIA. But the, yeah, this is what gives rise to the movements which in it's it which in Italian are known as uh, autonomia and operarista, which translates as autonomy and workerism, and which that's where the thinking of the theorists and philosophers like Antonio Negri uh, comes out of. I think I think we've probably mentioned on the show before, but you know, Negri is a philosopher, a professional philosopher who is associated with these movements, but he eventually ends up being prosecuted for responsibility for a wave of terrorist attacks by extreme left sort of quasi-Maoist groups in Italy in the second half of the 70s. And it's still historically rather unclear, actually, whether to what extent, how many of those were authentically being perpetrated by revolutionary groups, as was happening in places like Germany, and to what extent they were simply false flag attacks uh, perpetrated by uh, elements of the far right. And the state. I mean, there is. I mean, it is absolutely documented that some of it was that was the latter. 
but you know, Negri eventually has to go into exile in Paris, uh, where he lived for, for a very long time. He's back in Italy now, I think, but he had to he had to go into exile in Paris. And you know, I always say this is as if you know, it's as if somebody like Stuart Hall had been accused of being responsible for the Brixton riots, and you know, they, the Thatcher government had tried to put him in jail for it. So, there's, one way or another, there's this huge wave of people in different areas of life seeking to self-organise, seeking to democratise themselves. Of course, you know that's what leads the Trilateral Commission, this intergovernmental a right-wing think tank in i think 74 or 75 to publish its notorious report that said that uh, liberal democracy liberal de- democratic capitalist societies including even japan actually were su- suffering from in their words an excess of democracy so this excess and you know my account and other people's account has always been this is the this is the basis upon which the turn to neoliberalism by governments and corporate agencies takes place that neoliberalism becomes the strategic response to the excess of democracy, this wave of demands for democratic self-organization. And yet you see, and you see here in the case of the record pool, a really tiny localized example of that. But it is really interesting that even people in an, a, such an apparently relatively apolitical or depoliticized space as emergent DJ culture, you know, some of those people, these people like David in particular, you know, David and they have a sort of a pretty intuitive sense that collective democratic self-organization and is what you want to do is is how you want to respond to a particular set of challenges and of course what they do in the case of the record pool i mean the the object in engaging in democratic self-organization is to constitute a a commons in a sense you know a commons yeah this is a term when we talk about the commons, I mean, it's a term that comes out of economic history, really. I mean, the commons is a term, an old term that referred to land and other resources like woodlands and hunting grounds that were owned in common by the people of an area. And the privatisation of commons, common resources, common land was a key feature in the emergence of early capitalism in places like Britain in the 17th and 18th century. I mean, the reason you end up with a mass of former peasants really having no choice but to go work in the hellish factories of the early industrial revolution is because they've been kicked off the land that their ancestors had been farming for you know a thousand years or so and they'd been denied access also to the commons which those people had used to graze their animals on to collect firewood on etc and then this notion of the commons this term the commons gets revived uh, really in the it gets revived both by radical economists and by philosophers and theorists influenced by this Italian wave of uh, autonomism uh, from the 70s onwards into the 80s and subsequently. And we tend to use the term the commons these days just to refer to any possible type of collective resource which is democratically managed in some way. So it could be a public, a publicly owned school which is relatively democratically managed or it could be it could be anything or it could be a record pool. So it is really interesting that you know, the record pool is this expression of a generalised tendency towards democratic self-organisation and their impulse is to communise, their, inter- their impulse is to collectivise the property which they're getting from these uh, record companies rather than to compete for it. And I think that really does say something. It says something about where all this stuff is coming from culturally. It also says something just about the strength of the power of those radical norms which had come up through the new left in the counterculture that by this point this seems to be a relatively intuitive response to a challenge by on the part of people like david who who always was i mean david always was a sort of just yeah, sort of instinctive 
libertarian socialist. Although it, it can sound patronising to say it was instinctive. I mean, he was perfectly aware of what he was doing and what he was committed to. Love is the Message, a podcast about music, counterculture, parties and politics with Tim Lawrence and Jeremy Gilbert. What you say is really compelling around the sort of shifting modes of, of worker organisation, including in particular in, in, in Europe and maybe in particular, in particular in, in Italy, around autonomia. Um, I mean, it's worth just reminding ourselves at this point. I suppose one thing one thing to note is that this is, this is a, an argument that I think we are both com- quite committed to, which is to say that the, and we've made in an early in, the, in an earlier season that the trans transition from industrial to post industrial culture wasn't merely a kind of corporate conspiracy to uh, to return to you know new modes of profitability, um, but was also something which emerged in a grassroots way from the bottom up. It was because workers were getting tired of the routinized. Uh, and oppressive and boring conditions of work, in particular in factories, that they they sought to find a different mode of expression, and that this was a really this became a really important kind of aspect of counterculture. Um, I think it's Theodore Rozak who wrote this, you know, the first and maybe still the most important book on on counterculture says at one point that you know uh, more important than you know more relevant than the act of dropping out counterculture was you know was more interested in organizing around you know refusal of the disciplinary regime and experimentation with new forms of productivity um and this you know the record pool kind of captures this in in you know interesting ways really yeah sure. uh, you know they don't like what the record they don't like you know the way that the record companies are organizing the distribution of records they don't really like the marketing strategies of a lot of the records and they they want to kind of engage you know in a self-organized way of experiencing these these records in a different kind of context and so sort of quite interestingly the way they want to organize also means that they they stay up all night and they sleep all day it's the inverse of the nine to five their working hours are more like 5 p.m. to 9 a.m. than sort of, or wherever, somewhere in between that, than kind of the 9 to 5. And this was part of the problem that, that you know, was established for the record companies themselves. DJs, you know, the record companies did, wanted DJs to come along sort of late morning, early afternoon, and the DJs were kind of saying, well, hang on a sec, this, this is when we go to bed. <laughs> um, but it's also, yeah, it was just about also this is, on some level you can say that, you know, the DJs were kind of also generating their new modes of work but also new modes of productivity. You know, they were finding new ways to get the kind of, you know, records that they wanted to listen to and their dancers wanted to listen to into the ears of the dancers who might then go out and want to even buy them. So it's not like anti-commerce as such, but it might, it's a new model which is kind of isn't is more interested in kind of getting people who've got some spare money to get the record they want and to, you know, and to kind of, yeah, at least ac- access it in a more kind of democratic way. So I think it's it's sort of about the breakdown of of of, of industrial structures and eventually, you know, by accepting, and we'll come on to this, this more... Um, when we return to this subject, because during the recording of this, we have we have realised that we're not going to kind of be able to do all of this in in one episode yet again. Um, so we're going to come back to to aspects of this, but yeah, there's there is this kind of sense in which um, the, a new this is about DJs kind of helping to initiate a sort of a new a, a new countercultural 
economy. And also there's the, I mean, the other thing that's going on in parallel, which is really just a, you know, adds a little bit to your overview of this, is that I think it was in 1971, the OECD, the organization for, hang on, why am I even trying to, I thought it was economic development. Yeah. Economic cooperation and development. Oh, okay. I was wondering what the, thank you. Yeah, the OECD held a, a, a meeting in 1971, and and at this point they they highlighted a deterioration in workers' behaviour and motivation, uh, in which it was observed <laughs> that the, the young no longer wish to work, and especially not in industry. And you could say the record pool is a kind of direct outgrowth outgrowth of this of this kind of you know shift. DJs don't particularly want to drop out; they just want to have a different mode of work and a different mode of of organization is actually much more collective and communal i think that's a really good point i think i think we should leave it there for now and next yeah. time we'll get into some of the problems that emerged with the actual administration and implementation of the record pool and why it eventually stopped functioning uh, but let's have one more record before we go out uh we're gonna have labelle aren't we labelle the group fronted by patty labelle Probably my personal favourite of the great disco divas. Hmm. And this is Messing With My Mind, which is was a, a record, a popular record in, that was in the pool in Set a disco classic, really. Labelle is often often the arrangement of these Patti Labelle songs has this very interesting use of the piano for me, which which both sort of brings with it some of the beautiful ethereality of gospel, but also this kind of you know this sort of percussive urgency, which is so important to funk and disco, and it's it's sort of bringing back a melodic element into funk, but retaining this as I say, this percussive, percussive insistency, uh, which makes it a very sort of compelling and exciting record. And I think you can see how this, I mean, this record is, again, it's a lyric, which is just saying, you know, you're messing with my mind. It's sort of a, it's a sort of anti-romance almost lyric, which a lot of the best disco songs are actually, um, which, um, but at the level of how it feels to listen to it on a dance floor, it's absolutely an expression of this sense of creative collective potentiality that, the record pool is also in its way trying to institutionalize exactly i was just going to say you know this is also the dj's kind of well it's not but it could be you know the dj's may have agreed with the sentiment in as much as you know the the existing structures of you know the corporate music industry is uh also messing with their minds they're messing with their minds as well and their okay so we'll carry on the story of We'll do part two which i think will be the last part of the story of the record pool yeah that's great um uh, it's been really, really, really interesting talking about this with you, Gem. And we're going to come back uh, to do uh, a second part of this this uh, now double episode on the record pool, um, uh, looking at what happened to it in its first year and a half of operation, uh, which featured some arguments, but also some really interesting kind of initiatives um, that, uh, you know, uh, yeah, really looking forward to talking more about it. So uh, thanks for that, Gem. Thanks, Tim. See you next time, everyone. Thanks to everyone for list. Thanks to everyone for listening in. And yeah, love is the message. Bye bye. <laughs>